WPSL Port St. Lucie. And now it's time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome, and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Christians. We're glad, glad you're with, you're with us today. today. And hope that hope you can you stay, stay with, with us with for us. the whole show today. We're on for an hour live here in Port St. Lucie. And we're glad we can be with you today on a beautiful Lord's Day morning. At least that, at least that's what time it is when we're doing the show. I'm not sure what time you may be listening to it, but we're glad that you can be with us or what time it is where you're listening. Because, Gary, from what I understand, you can get the show anytime pretty much or anywhere around the world on the Internet. Right. Whether it's 9 o'clock Eastern time or not. Uh, as I mentioned, as you just heard, We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show. And in just a second, I'm going to give you the numbers where you can reach us if you want to get a piece of paper and pencil, write it down. But my name is Mike Schmidt, as you heard, and I'm the preacher and one of the elders for the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. And Gary Jones is here with us too, today, too, our partner. How you doing, Gary? I'm here, just just like the guy at the radio station. I'm here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't think, uh, I think there's a lot of bugs going around, but we're both able to be here. And uh, we would invite you to join us in the show today. This is, I mentioned, a live call-in show. So you can reach the show at the regular call-in number for WPSL, which is 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number. And uh, we'll, we'll um, you know, take your call, your comment, your question, whatever else is on your mind today. And uh, we'll have try to have a discussion with you. We, this show is, well, we certainly don't mind disagreement. In fact, I guess in some ways that makes things interesting. But on the other hand, this show is not about, you know, confrontations and having arguments and whatnot. We, we don't mind disagreeing. We would be, uh, be very glad to talk with you about a subject. And if we do disagree, we'll let you know. And we promise you that if that we'll give you the last word. This isn't about having you call up us, uh, you know, ridiculing you or, you know, baiting you or something like that. That's not what the show's about. I've heard shows like that, and they're not that, really, they're not that fun to listen to. They, certainly, they don't do what we want to do, which is to teach and to learn at the same time and to uh, find out how to serve God better. Now, the other thing I want to mention, as we mentioned from time to time about We Are Just Christians, is you don't have to be a believer to call into this show. We, we talk about lots of different subjects, just not some esoteric you know, subject from some obscure passage in the Bible. Uh, we are glad to talk about that or whatever subject is on your mind, but we talk about you know, cultural things, personal things. So if you've got something that's troubling you, bothering you, you want to know what the Bible says about it or some spiritual perspective, Give us a call. We're going to try to give you uh, Bible references for you to look up and a perspective of, of, some, of someone who takes the Bible seriously and, li- and literally, essentially, at least at face value. And so that's what the, where this show is coming from. We'd be glad to talk with you about our presuppositions, you know, what's behind our thinking, why we think like that, because it does differ so much from the mainstream culture that sometimes it's, you know, shocking. It used to be considered, what what we believe used to be considered uh, <laughs> normal, you might say, although that's not a word that's been applied to me very often, but it would be normal. Or no, But but what we what we believe now, Gary and I, is probably considered outside the mainstream. I'm not ashamed of that. Well, can defend, not politically can, correct, can defend, that's sure. Sure, we can defend that, and we'd be glad to have a discussion with you about that. So give us a call, 772 Three four zero fifteen ninety, and the reason that that's true is because the culture has shifted during our lifetime. The Bible has remained the same, and so we're trying to be faithful to what the scriptures say uh, as far as a worldview and as far as teaching you about different topics religiously. And so we're going to try to do that. Now we got a phone call, but let me before we get to the phone call. Uh, well, let me just say one thing before uh, before we go on, Mike. And our our presuppositions are more like John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That's Jesus speaking, and that I I think Mike would agree pretty well sums up 
our edit. Yeah, that, that gets in a lot of things, including the reason why it's important that we listen to these things, right. because there's a judgment day coming and so forth. Let me give you the text numbers before we go to the phone. You can also reach the show not only by calling 772-340-1590, but you can also reach us by text message. Uh, my text number is 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. Gary's text number is very similar, 772-260-6220. And so um, we would be I'm glad to receive a text from you, not only during the show today, which we'll try to respond to, but even during the week. Okay, let's jump to the phone. Are you there, Jerry? Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bill. I, I had a stroke about a year ago. Uh -huh. Hard to uh, uh, understand, but I was wondering about the force of Jericho uh, and the figure of Ruth. Uh, was a, a red light, uh, just like a red light, just like in and uh, how did Ruth play into the uh, uh, into the Bible? And uh, I'd like to listen on Chrome Mike. That'd be right. That'd be okay, Jerry. Thank you for calling. All right. Well, we appreciate it very much. Uh, actually, in Jericho, the story of, of Jericho found in the book of Joshua, and she's referenced several other places, uh, the woman there in that story is named Rahab. Ruth right. is another ancestor of Jesus Christ who was also not an Israelite by birth. But they uh, both have in common. They were, they were in the lineage of Jesus. In the lineage of Jesus, and yet Gentiles, but who became believers in uh, Jehovah and so forth. So um, they're, both out, they're both outstanding women, and we'll probably, as we talk about them, we can come to that. But this story of Rahab, um, I, I, I think in reading this story, of course, what happened what was happening was the Israelites, a huge number of Israelites was on the move out of Egypt and they approached the land of Canaan and the inhabitants of that land became very fearful because they had heard of the Israelites coming and the victory God had given them over a few other of the people in their way. And um, one of the main cities they had to take when they first entered the land and came, they were coming, picturing the, you can picture a map of of um, Palestine on the left side or the, or the west is the Mediterranean Sea and then the coast comes down and then uh, inland somewhat is a river the Jordan River and there's the you know the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south and and Israel instead of coming up from Egypt straight up along the coastline they came out around to the to the east side on the east side of the Jordan River, and then went into the land kind of in the middle and split it in two, in a sense, with this invasion. And Jericho was one of the first cities they came to, not the first, but one of the first, and it was a well-fortified city of the people that lived there in the land, and um, they wondered how they were going to take it. It was one of the most formidably fortified cities, in my understanding, in yes. the area. In the whole area, it was a it was a fortress, and so everybody in the surrounding area often they they would flee to these walled cities. Well, they had sent spies out. Mos, uh, jo uh, Joshua had sent spies out into the land, and two of the spies came to Jericho, and um, they they met a woman named Rahab there, who it says was a was a harlot, and uh, they had taken um, they took refuge. And this is in, uh, they took refuge in her house, which was in the wall. And um, that starts uh, this in Joshua 2. Jo right? yeah, I was going to say, it's in Joshua chapter 2. And so they heard that there was, so it says, so they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab. Now, this word harlot uh, is somewhat controversial, but I think in general, the Hebrew root there means you know a fornicator or a or an immoral woman most likely a, a, a what we would call a prostitute of some sort and that's the that's the way the word is used throughout all the old testament now sometimes back in that time i don't i'm not sure if it doesn't really say this about rahab but sometimes these women were actually religious women who were what we would call prostitutes, but they were taking money from men to worship God, a god. They represented a goddess, fertility goddess of some sort. And 
And we know that this became common later in the history of Israel among the people that lived in the land of Canaan who were not Jews. And even among the Jews, these women would become prostitutes, as it were, to serve a foreign goddess, a fertility goddess. It doesn't say that about Rahab, so that's possibly, though, what she was. But, it, but it, what happened was because she had heard the stories of Jehovah, their God, giving them victory over the other gods that they were encountering, the, the people worshiping other gods they were encountering. She And when she met these men, she believed that Jehovah was on their side, that he was the true God. And so she hid them, even when they came and questioned her and bring out the spies that have come into your house. And, and so she hid them, and she said, well, I don't know where they came from, and I don't know where they went, you know, and so forth. And so then, and then she um, said that they had left, and so they went out looking for them and left her alone, and then she snuck them down. Um, out of the city and they went back you know they they went their way so she said that she said to them it says in verse 8 of this chapter 2 Gary now before they lay down to hide for the for the evening she came to them on the roof and she said to the men I know that Jehovah has given you the land and the terror of you has fallen on us and that the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you for we have heard how, the, it says in King James, the Lord, L-O-R-D, but the word there is Jehovah. So I know how that Jehovah dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted, neither to remain any more courage in us because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above, on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will show kindness to my father's house, and give me a true token, and spare my father, and my mother, and my brothers, my sister, and all they that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And so the men agreed to this, that the Lord has given us this land, and we're going to deal kindly with you. So she let them down through a rope, told them where to flee to, and so... Uh, the men said to her, we will be blameless of the oath of yours, which you have made us swear unless we come to the land. You bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father and all of them into your own home, then if you stay, you go in your home and you stay there with this cord on the window, you'll be fine. But if you don't, we're not, we can't keep our oath. And so then that's what they did. And um, this, some people say, uh, Jerry, that this red cord is the reason why that the color red is associated with prostitutes down through uh, a lot of history. You know, the red light in a window in a red light district, you hear about this? Yeah. That they would put candles or lights up instead of the cords because of Rahab the heart. I have no idea if that's true, but that's the association that's made with a harlot and the red cord or the red or the red uh, light in a window. But they did spare Rahab. And uh, when the city fell and the walls fell down, you know, uh, we went to Jericho on our trip to Israel in 2020. And it is interesting. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff preserved there, several layers of this city. You can see the thick walls, the foundations of the walls, and the way that they fell. It's interesting to see that. And um, I couldn't tell as much as if I'd been a professional archaeologist what I was looking at some of the time. But um, the guide commented that it was very unusual structure, the way that it was destroyed and everything. And it was very thick walls. They were like eight feet thick. At least big, plenty big enough to have apartments yeah. in the walls of the city and so forth. So this woman becomes an important an important part of of the history of Israel in in the fact because she was a faithful was was because she became a believer in in Jesus. What am I trying to say here? Well, I'm it, sorry. I'm looking. I'm looking up. So she became a believer in Jehovah. She heard. She heard what Jehovah had done, 
and she believed that he was the true God of heaven and earth. That's what she said. Okay, and but let's let's point out that belief involved something more than just okay, I believe in what you say. She acted. She took action that was a great risk to her. Right. She had, it, her it, faith led her to do what was right. Right. Yes. Faith led her to do these things, which if the king of Jericho or the, those officials had found out, uh, she would not have fared well at their hands. Right. So she took a great risk for these men. Right. Uh, that I, th- I think that that feeds into a lot of our our ideas about how we treat the gospel and what God says to us. So a lot of the other people of the city of Jericho heard of the wonders of Jehovah delivering the Jews or Israel, not Jews, Israel out of Egypt and what they had done for them in the wilderness. But they didn't respond the same way that Rahab did. Had this city surrendered to them and not tried to kill, fight them, God would have probably spared the city. But he didn't. They didn't believe that Jehovah was really the God of heaven. Ahab realized that she was, he was, and so in essence, she surrendered to him and had faith in him, and she did what the spies told her to do. When they said, put the cord out and get your family in, this, in your room, she did, and she was spared. So she becomes a symbol for salvation through faith uh, and obedience. A- and then you find the, the con- real connection uh, the important connection in the book of Matthew. Go all the way, jump out of the Old Testament. You don't have too much more about Rahab there, a little bit more. But you have then Matthew uh, chapter 1. It says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now you read down, and in verse uh, five. 5, it says Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed by Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. So here in the same verse that he mentions Rahab, guess who's mentioned? David the king. And you keep reading, and you see that it leads straight to Christ. Right. So here is, I think that make if I'm reading this genealogy correctly, that makes Rahab David's great-grandmother, something like that. Because you have Jesse and Obed and Boaz, and Rahab is, and funny, um, Boaz is a great man too in the book of Ruth, and that's, his mother is Rahab, Boaz's mother is Rahab according to this genealogy, if I read it right, and, um, you know, Boaz was a faithful man also, And, and Ruth, again, another Gentile who became a believer, see, the thing that's misunderstood in reading the Old Testament, both by Jews and now even by Gentiles, is that being a Jew was not simply a matter of, gene- of genetics or genealogy. It was a matter of belief in Jehovah primarily. It just so happened that the only group of people at large that believed in Jehovah as the true God were the descendants of Abraham. And we might but, point out why that was. What what did uh, what did they say that we should do? What what did he tell them? Tell your children. They taught their right, children. Right, Deuteronomy six. They, they they taught their children about this. That's right. right. That's why the children are so important. You're hearing a word about the children today? Yeah. That's they important. Pass on. Well it, it says about Abraham and, and we're gonna get off the track a little bit here, but one of the things it says about Abraham Genesis eighteen nineteen, is that God says, I chose you because I knew that you would command your children after you to follow me. So he chose Abraham, and Abraham did this. He, com- he got his children away from idolatry, because Abraham was raised in an idolatrous environment. His relatives were idolaters in Mesopotamia, but he became a follower of Jehovah, the one God, and he, he taught his children to follow Jehovah. Now, that doesn't mean that they all followed him faithfully, but that's the, that's the general drift of things. But there are lots of people, and, and, and truthfully, any Gentile that wanted to become a child of Abraham by faith, all they had to do was begin to follow Jehovah and do what the law said. And God accepted them. The reason he, prevented, he pro- prohibited marriages between 
the Jews and the people of Canaan, not every Gentile, but particularly people of Canaan, is because he knew that these marriages would lead people away from serving him, not because of some impurity in the genetic line, but because it would lead people away from serving him. And because you see here, right in the genealogy of Jesus, you see these women that are being mentioned, Tamar and and um, even even Bathsheba's mentioned here, and and Ruth and Rahab. Matthew mentions these women, and then of course here's the reason why, Gary. When you read the whole genealogy, you pick out these five women, which is very unusual in a genealogy, even in the Bible, to have the women mentioned. These five women are all mentioned. There's something tainted or wrong, as it were, with all these women. And the last one in the whole picture is Mary. We had a call about her a week or two ago. Who is but, not. What's that? Well, who wasn't tainted, but she was considered tainted because she had a child out of wedlock, according to right. the people of that day. She had a child out of wedlock. And so Mary, the reason I, I think that's the reason that Matthew puts these women in this genealogy because there's something that somebody could find fault with about these women just like they were going to find fault with mary and so forth but you have and to balance that i think against the idea why did god choose mary because she was not tainted well yes but they viewed her as such but they viewed her as such. and neither was rahab but they viewed her as such See. And I don't think Ruth was either in the but, sexual but she, sense. No, but she was certainly not she was, a Jew. She was not a Jew and not accepted. She was a Moabitess. Now, there's some indication. Well, we don't get into that in the story of Ruth. Ruth's another whole interesting story. Now, we got a text from, from Ken that says um, here, Rahab, quote, lied to those looking for spies, but the truth is what God says it is. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth that is his father, that truth his father. So uh, the, that's another question that comes up in the discussion of Rahab. Not only was she perhaps a prostitute, but she lied to these men who right. came to her door. We were discussing this, and probably will a little bit more, in our Bible class a week or two ago about Abraham telling people that, his, that Sarah, his wife, was his sister. Or she was his sister in another sense, but the question then comes up, uh, you know, what's a lie? Is it okay to – somebody comes to your door like this seeking to kill somebody else, and they're in your house. Do you have to say, oh, yeah, they're here. Go kill them. I mean, are you obligated to do that, to tell them the quote-unquote the truth? Well, you know, I, I think you, I think there's an ethical debate there, but Rahab – and this is one of the things that I I don't know what to make of it, but I tend to lean, Gary, more toward uh, if I don't know, I'm going to let the Bible tell me something's wrong or not. God God defines what's wrong, and he doesn't condemn Rahab here for telling. He doesn't condemn Rahab, but he does condemm lying. There yes. Oh, yes. Him. I'm and, saying, and but that, but that the question is, what's a lie? Is it an intentional deception, usually for self-benefit? Well, or, the, the or, real or problem I have with some of this and, and where the discussion comes, I think, is because there are several cases where deception is practiced without lying. And in those cases, no comment is made about that, about either the person or what they did. Well, and that's what I'm trying to say. That's what and, I'm getting But at. they didn't yeah. lie, but they did deceive. Right. And, and that's right. is deception always wrong in per, that per may not say? Be, and I don't think it is necessarily. It may not be, but. I think what the Bible is telling us is you have to be extremely careful when you practice. Now, now this is where, and we're off our subject of yeah, Rahab. Yeah, we're, we're really off. But of that's okay. But th this is where the, d the debate was at one time about the subject of situation ethics, back when you and I were younger, situation, e situation ethics. And that's been, you know, the funny thing is it's almost, I think it's odd to discuss this topic now in the 2020s. Uh, the book was written in the 70s. Uh, or 60s or 70s, Joseph Joseph Fletcher wrote a book called Situation Ethics, and it's been tremendously misunderstood, and yet understood properly, it still is wrong, but he put forth this idea that ethics depends upon the situation, and so people then ran with that, and we, we live in a society today, Gary, that is so unethical, doesn't, well, it's unethical because it doesn't even believe there's such, is such a, 
a thing as truth. All this discussion about males and females and transgender and all that stuff, the whole debate is taking place in – and I'm not just making a slander here. I'm telling you it's taking place in the environment that there is no such thing as objective truth. If a person says, I'm a female, then the modern way of philosophically thinking about that, according to the intellectuals of our day, the liberal progressive intellectuals, then their true their statement of truth about themselves is truth, that they are a woman, even though they have male body parts, because they say it is, because truth is not an objective thing. It's a completely subjective thing, depending upon the cir- circumstances. And they can be a cauliflower tomorrow if they want to be. And that'll be a true statement for them to say, I'm a cauliflower. If they want to, because there's no such thing as objective. Now, this is where the debate lies. It isn't just saying bad things about gay people. That really that, that isn't the debate. That's what they'd like you to think the debate is. But that's not the debate. The debate is whether there's such a thing as truth. And how do we defi- how do we determine that truth? And so Joseph Fletcher said back in the 60s or 70s, I forgot what year that book was written. You can look it up. Situation Ethics. That's the name of the book. He gave many examples, and one of them he gave, uh, he said that that the only thing that determines what something, whether something is ethical or not is whether it is done in love. If something is done out of love, then it is ethical or right. If something is not done out of love, then it is unethical. And he gave the illustration of someone coming to your door and with a gun threatening to kill so-and-so is John here is John here. And he, John just came in the door and you hit him in your closet. Uh, are you obligated to say John's here? So he goes in and kills the person. He said, it's ethical for you to say John's not here and send him away because you're doing it out of love for John to save his life. Well, now that almost fits this story we're reading right here. But then he told another story in the book. And I read the book years ago of uh, a a woman who was in a concentration camp in Germany, an English woman. And um, the only way you could get out of the concentration camp at that point, this camp she was in, was either, if you're a woman, was either to be dead or be pregnant. And so she seduced the guard there, Franz, whatever his name was. She seduced one of the guards and and got pregnant by him, and they sent her home. They, they released her. And she ends up back in England with her husband and her and her other children. She takes this baby with her, has the baby there. And so she named the child after the guard because he the guard had saved her life by getting her pregnant. Now, Joseph Smith presents this as a case that she did good. She did a good thing by committing adultery and seducing this guard. Now, this is where situation ethics also takes you, Gary. And so that's an example he presents in the book because it was done out of love. Now, is that a true ethic that if it's done out of love, if you think it's loving, then it must be moral. So if you love another man and you're a man, then it's perfectly loving to have sex with them because you love the person. This is where we are. Is that ethical? I don't think the Bible says that's ethical. Well, there's there's another part of this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'd, I'd like for our listeners to at least go investigate First Samuel 16, verses 1 through, I think, 4. And that's the story that, you know, I've related several times about Saul and what the Lord told him to do. Uh, it's very similar to the two accounts of Abraham. Uh, if you look through this, I think Rebecca even may have done the same thing when she stole the idols and they came to search. Uh, uh-huh. You know, th- there, there are several examples of deception in in the old in the old testament where lies were not told and if that's the way it can be done that might be justifiable but then there are some bad things that happened relative to what abraham did in terms of he deceived the king and uh, did not tell a lie and yet god had to rescue the king from committing sin so well, yeah, you, you you know, you go home today and you're and Sharon says to you, does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> now, you know what or how do you like my hat? You know, that old that old thing. Okay? Do, you, do you like 
Well, what are you going to say? Um, in her case, I'd tell her the truth. Okay. And, and, but now you can tell the truth in a lot of ways. I try to be kind about it. That's what I'm saying. But, uh, but in the long run, there has to be some level of ethical trust. The only, the, it, it, deception is wrong many times. There are times when a type of deception, which is done in the case of saving someone's life or some other deception, uh, is probably justifiable. The trouble is you and I are very poor at deciding when that is because most of us tell, say what we say. You know, we only lie when it, we think it benefits us. We only lie when we think it does us good most of the time. Our, our calculation is, how is this lie, how is telling the truth going to affect me? And if, if it affects us poorly, then we are willing to lie. That's the way most people's and ethics think, and is involved. People, how and big, that's, how, that's the problem. How right big there. a lie is this? If it's a small one, then it's okay. Or yeah. if it's in, in what and we, we say and is we start using our human judgment to make those decisions about the size of the lie. And it's often m- motivated by selfish things, even even not wanting to be embarrassed or being found out. On the other hand, you've heard I said in the pulpit here recently or in the class, I said, I don't owe you an answer to every question that you ask me. Just because someone asks me a question, it doesn't mean I owe them an answer to that question or that I have to tell them that I have to tell them everything that I know about that. Uh, for example, Gary, you, you and I as elders are told things in confidence. People will tell us something because they need to, if we can help them with a difficulty or situation. And as elders, pastors, they trust us and they tell us things in confidence. Now, if someone were to ask us, well, what did so-and-so say? Are we under obligation to violate that confidence that we've been given? I don't think so. I can give an answer and say, no, that's not something I can talk about, which is the truth. Which is the truth. And sometimes now, now that has consequences because you could be put in a situation where then you're being accused of something. And the fact that you won't give the whole story, the fact that you withhold information makes you look guilty and hurts you. So some people betray confidences in that regard because they get put in and Satan loves to put you in that kind of situation where he's trying to force you to do something wrong. But before before we go from this first Samuel 16, I want to point out. This is the only example I found is be careful about who told Samuel what to do. Because in this case, it was the Lord who told Samuel what to do. Right. Right. So we can make up our own. uh, We can make we can take this and then expand it, make up our own system. And I just think it's just simply not the the truth is. What did Jesus say? Oh, I love that. You know, there are there are certain statements in the Bible, Gary, I've come to believe transcend the context that they're in by a lot they're used in a certain context and i believe in keeping everything in its context but things like the truth shall set you free jesus that's not just in that context of being a child of abraham and so forth that that statement the truth shall set you free is a universal truth that is that existed before the world began and will exist after humanity is gone from the earth that's a true statement. The truth will set you free. So in the long run, in dealing with any problem, when I do any kind of counseling, any kind of uh, help with people, I emphasize the truth will eventually set you free. Trying to think through what's right or wrong, what you're going to do about situations, marriage problems, the truth. Now, that creates a problem of struggling to find out what the truth is because we're blinded by our own uh, desires and lusts and so forth to find out what the truth is. We're blinded by our own history sometimes, our own background to what the truth is. This is why we need the scriptures, we need good friends and so forth. Well, that's why, Mike, it's so so difficult to do a self-examination. Paul talks about that we should examine ourselves often as to whether we are in the faith. That self-examination is necessary, and, and we... At least I find I probably don't do it as often as I should, but it's extremely difficult to do in an honest way. Of course, yes, and that's the struggle with being a Christian. I don't care if you've been one for a month or 50 years. Uh, you, you have to uh, 
you have to be, keep doing that self-examination in a, in a critical way. And that's what people don't do. The humble people, the picture we find in the Bible, the humble, humble and the meek do that. And they learn to do it better and better as time goes by. And, and now, and, and even, and here's the other thing about the truth. You know, some people just beat themselves up with the truth, what they call the truth. Uh, they always had to find fault with everything that they did, and they're always hypercritical of everything that they did. Sometimes the truth is you did the right thing, and you did what you could do at that particular time. Did it fail? It may have failed, or it may not turn out well, But and people may not like it, but that doesn't mean you did the wrong thing just because of all those things. And, and you're not always a bad person. Sometimes the truth is you're not a bad person. You did do the right thing, and you did have the right motivation. And so you have to accept the truth of that as well as the truth is you fell short or you were selfish or you were harsh or whatever it may be. But Rahab is also mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. Of all the people in the Bible here, of all the people in the Bible that the writer of Hebrews could bring up, uh, he says here, uh, it says in verse 30 of Hebrews 11, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And then what more shall I say? Here's Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. So here's Rahab mentioned right there with all Abraham and all these other great people of the Bible. This is called the Hall of Fame of Faith, you know. And says that she did not perish by faith because she had faith in Jehovah and therefore her life was saved because she did what she was because she received the spies in peace. You also find um, James two. Yes, in James two, when talking about uh, this is this this one I think is very important because basically it it feeds into this idea of faith alone as salvation, which leads us to the sinner's prayer and things like that, that you and I have talked about. Uh -huh. But I'd like to read verse 25 and 26 of chapter 2 of James. It says, Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. She's cited as one saved by the things she did. Well, yes, and you well, you see that the verse before that, you see that then you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith, faith only. only. Likewise, Rahab the harlot also is justified by. So this is the kind of works she's talking about. Not works that you make up, not rituals that the Catholic Church preaches, or other works that you make up trying to be saved. Doing what God said to do and having faith in God and acting on that faith. You see, here's the thing. She said she had faith in Jehovah and asked the spies for something. They told her what they, she should do. And they were, as it were, at that point, speaking on God's behalf. And when she did what they said, she was saved. So I think he's implying that those spies at that point were speaking on Jehovah's behalf that if she would put down the scarlet cord and have her family there, they'd be saved. She did that. She was saved. And so here it says that she let them out and she received them and sent them away on their way. Um, so she is the example of being saved by faith. Yeah. And and, and not by works. Uh, say, not saved by faith alone, well, but by was, being saved by faith and was, by works, I should say. Right, I said it she wrong. was saved by a particular kind of faith. He says in verse 22 of James 2, do you not see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. Yeah, it says she was justified by works. Yeah. And she, she had a complete faith, not a half-hearted yeah. faith of just the mouth. Yeah, if you look up that definition of that made perfect, that idea, we would say today made complete. Made complete or made whole. So faith that just talks and says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's partial faith. But that isn't complete or perfect faith. That's not saving faith. That's not, not saving faith. Because the dim, he says there very clearly, the demons believe and tremble. The demons have that kind of, oh, yeah, they believe that Jesus is God's son. But they won't act upon that. They won't do anything to obey. So she's the example. And that's, that's, how, that's several places where this woman is mentioned in the Bible that Jerry asked about. Um, 
starting with the story in Jericho all the way down through one of the last books of the New Testament, perhaps, or at least in, in order. James may have been a fairly early book, but in any event, all the way down to the book of James and several important places. So interesting, interesting story. And, and um, she's a woman that's praised in the Bible. So don't let this idea, oh, she's a harlot, taint your understanding of her. Um, I, I'm a, I would say if God is consistent, you would see the same you would see the same um, reaction that Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery. Go thou and sin no more. Well, there there was a there was a movie that there was a line in the movie that I thought was basically true, though I've not heard it once. Um, uh, a guy who uh, the character was a preacher of some sort. And you're not told. And he's speaking to a man who was a thief and probably a killer. And uh, but he's now trying to do right. And he says to him, God doesn't care what you were. He only cares what you are. Yeah. And, and I think these these women are examples of that. These there are many examples of that in uh, I think within the Old Testament and the New. Right. And and where Rahab is one of those. Now now this other um, I forgot what he said. Um, Ruth. Ruth is a whole other story. Of course, Ruth is in this same chapter. Uh, of, of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth is just a Moabitess who shows great faith in, in well, these, Jehovah these appear, as such. appear to be the great-grandmother and grandmother of David. Is that correct? Exactly. I think that that's how I read the genealogy. Yeah, that's now, that, the assumption there is that he's not skipping generations, which I don't in this case think that he is uh, skipping these generations. So they're, um, you know, they're in the genealogy, and it goes against this idea that, oh, they would never marry someone who was a Gentile. They weren't supposed to marry people who were of the Canaanite tribes. <clears throat> and they did, weren't supposed to marry people who were not believers in Jehovah, as it were. But these women became be- believers. were believers in Jehovah. So I don't think that there was a problem here in this case with them um, with them marrying these women. And it's obvious that there isn't from the mention in the book of Matthew and the praise is given to them in this case. So anyway, another subject that we well, got. Well, not going. just Matthew, but Hebrew and James as well in the New Testament. Yeah, uh, that's right. They're listed they're, as, they're as good praise, women. They're in praiseworthy positions here. Not right. only that, but positions that define what God is trying to tell us about the things that we should, the things that we should be. Exactly. Exactly. Well, there's a. I appreciate Jerry's um, Jerry's question this morning, and um, it, I pr- appreciate the study it takes in the Bible to uh, uh, the study kind of study it takes to come up with those kind of questions. We appreciate that very much, and thank you for calling. If you want to you want to get a hold of us here? We got plenty of time left uh, to to talk to you or answer your questions or listen to your comment. You can reach We Are Just Christians at seven seven two. Three four zero fifteen ninety seven seven two three four zero one five nine zero is the number, and you can also reach the show uh, by text message at seven seven two two six zero six one two zero seven seven one two six zero six one two zero or seven seven two two six zero six two two zero. And we thank Ken for texting in his comment about Rahab too. Brings he brought up the whole subject of situation ethics as <laughs> you know it's interesting how how much in this when i first began to preach uh, in the seven in the 70s and early 80s how much relative um, uh you know relative morality versus absolute morality was being discussed relative relative ethics what i'm trying the relativism the idea that ethics are relative to the situation was being discussed in the world and culture and in the religious world. It's never discussed today because we've moved past that. We've moved way past that, even among so many folks, listen to me, so many people that you put your confidence in that are preaching in pulpits and and in seminaries and and even that you put your confidence in, in people in universities, they don't believe that there's such a thing as right or wrong. 
They don't believe some things are absolutely right and some things are absolutely wrong. They think that's an antiquated notion that we're, we're way past all of that, that all ethics is simply relative to who's saying it. And, and that's, the, that's the whole point of, of critical theory, whether it's critical race theory or whatever kind of critical theory it is. Critical theory is predicated upon the idea that there are no absolutes, that each person's own experience is the only criteria for their actions. So if they've been oppressed, it's not wrong if they murder or steal because they've been oppressed and so forth and so on. So you have to understand that the basis of Mark, the basis of Marxist thinking and the critical theories are all Marxist in their origin, in their in their philosophy for certain certain is all that ethics is relative, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And none and of Christianity this, is the opposite right. of that. This but is completely opposite. None of, of this can be can work in the face of putting God out of your life. Once you put God out of your life, you lose the basis for everything that's good in terms of moral judgments. Once you do that, you have no basis to you say have no basis right for what you do. That's the folly of people that have been hurt by God, and when they see bad things in the world, and then they want to blame God for it. Um, then they don't have any basis to understand. What was it, the New York Times uh, this week? Oh, I got it here somewhere. Well, one of the things that people, it's, it's like you say, Mike, I think people don't understand the purpose of misfortune in this world. And I, and I use the word misfortune because we kind of define it that way. But God does test people. Talk about Ruth. Talk about Rahab. Did God test them to reveal their faith? And he did. They right. both received tests. They were different tests. Rahab saw the spies come in. And I, I point out, I think quite quite truly, she took a great risk to hide them and to put them away. She was tested. Her faith was tested. Ruth lost her husband. As a matter of fact, Ruth's mother-in-law lost all of her sons. Mm -hmm. And she was tested, basically, in, in a different way. And what we have to understand, I think, is God, God knows how to test us. He knows that. He can yes, test us. and he does test us and see, to see. And ultimately, the reason did. for testing us is to do us good in the end, and we fail to see that. Uh, I'd just like to go back to Deuteronomy 8 and verse 16. He talks about testing them, but he says... Um, in Deuteronomy 8, in beginning in verse, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. That was the whole purpose. He actually tells them in Deuteronomy 8 why right. he's doing this. Right. We don't understand. The book of Job is another test. Uh, and, and we see basically those things. Those are hard to understand and hard to look around for some people. But I think the lesson in Job is to understand God tests us. Sometimes he tests us to a limit. Right. Well, I, I found this article this week. Well, it was all over the place, I suppose. Uh, you could hear about it. But I found a, a reply by Dennis Prager from the, to the New York Times. Here at the week of Passover and this, and this year, Easter, the New York Times and Newsweek always come out with these anti-Christianity articles, Christmas and Easter. It's just been a tradition of theirs. In this case, it's also an anti-Jewish article. In the New York Times... Isn't uh, Prager Jewish? Prager's Jewish, but Prager's commenting about this article, that the New York Times published an article called Let's Pass Over God. Uh, let's, it's, that's the name of the article, Let's Pass Over God, This Passover. By a, written by a disgruntled Jew, Shalom Auslander. He's an or, brought up an Orthodox Jew. And so he basically is, complains about the whole Passover narrative being God killing all the Egyptians' firstborn son. And he has a lot of statements that Prager shows are completely false, either lies or ignorance about the Seder and the Passover, what's taught about it in 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 orthodox settings. But 
and I don't we can get into that some other time. It's pretty interesting about, you know, even the even the he says the Jews believe that the Egyptians, even the Egyptian mother's milk turned into blood and all this kind of stuff. But he says that's simply not true in Orthodox teaching what he's saying. But uh, anyway, he said they're taught that they they were even rebuked for singing about it because God hated killing. God hated killing the Egyptians and he wanted them to understand that people died so they could be free. But anyway, he says this. Here's here's what um, the, the, the Auslander fellow says. If, if he were mortal, that is, the God of the Jews, if the God of the Christians, Jews, and Muslims were, immor- were mortal, he'd be dragged to the Hague, tried for crimes, you see. And yet we praise him. We emulate him. We implore our children to be like him. Perhaps now is a good time to teach our children to pass over be- God and to be as unlike him as possible. Then, he says, when children hear biblical stories about God, they will boo instead of cheer. Okay. Now, um, he, he has a lot of, uh, you can read the article by Prager, it has interesting things about it. Uh, he said, but it's interesting, number one, that in the same issue, the New York Times, and during the, the same paper, when it's time for the Muslim holidays, you don't get this kind of article. You only get it when there's Jewish and Christian holidays. In time of the Ramadan, you get 15 recipes for observing Ramadan, where, where breaking the Ramadan fast includes caribou. And you get you know, articles positive toward Islam in the New York Times. But you get negative articles about Christianity and Judaism, Orthodox Jews in particular. But secondly, here's the problem. How does this fellow Auslander know that it's wrong for the Jews to kill the Egyptians? Where does he get that idea that it's wrong to kill Egyptians if you're God or if you're not God? Where? He has to get that idea from the Bible itself, from the fact that there is an absolute God in heaven. How does how does the Hague know what crimes it should prosecute people for? He says they'd be dragged to the Hague, which shows you something about his sense of morality anyway, as if those people are moral. But where do they get their notions of right or wrong? Who can say that the Hague is right? And the only way you get that is with God. So when, when you're upset with God because of some tragedy that you've undergone, Let's say that you've been abused as a child and you're angry with God because God let this happen. I understand that. But I want you to remember in that situation that if you give up God because you're angry that he let this happen to you, how do you even have a basis for saying what happened to you was bad except your own feelings, which can change? You have to have something more than your own feelings about it to make it right or wrong. This is where we're off the track. And the more our society destroys the notion of a God in heaven, because we don't like what God in heaven says, whether it's stop practicing sodomy or whether it may be, just because we don't like what he says, we get rid of God, we don't have any basis for knowing what's right or wrong. And we're going to be ruled by vicious men who will set themselves up as God. Gary, that's always what's happened. When societies throw away Jehovah, they end up putting up a man who's more vicious than God could ever be. Well, look at what's happening today. I mean, it, you know, God God gives us uh, basically a, a commandment. I, I don't know how, how many times, but in, at least in Deuteronomy, but it's all through uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's all through, it, it's even within the New Testament in many ways. God tells his people to put away the evil from among you. What are we doing now? We don't put away the evil. We no. just, we take them in, we look we at celebrate them, it. And, and we throw them right back out. Right. That's what's going on now. And so we're seeing the result of putting away things that God tells us right today we, in our we, society. We exalt right these people right up to the top of our society, of our list of respected people. Now, so this... This article, for one, should tell you, if you don't know already, you Christians out there listening to this show today, it should tell you what the New York Times and the people associated with the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and all those other, and, and you already know what Disney World thinks of you, 
It should right. tell you what they think of you if you take the Bible seriously and believe in biblical morality. They think they think you're an awful, terrible person. And, and it ought to cause you to change. You're going to have to change. You're going to have to change your attitude about these people and the elites in our society. You have to change your attitude about them, not to hate them, but you have to be suspicious of them. You have to stop believing what they tell you. You have to stop letting them set the agenda for your life and for your children. You have to go the other direction. You have to treat everything they say with suspicion because they deserve the suspicion. They deserve the scorn that they should receive from good people. And, and it's becoming more apparent all the time. But if you think that the New York Times and CNN and all those kind of media outlets are on your side as a Christian, you've just you've been living under a rock. You're completely deceived. And, well, and if these there are plenty of other so-called Christians in our society, Gary, from more progressive Christians who think that they can cozy right up to this snake and they won't get bitten. They're hoping they won't get bitten. Well, I keep, going, I keep going back to, to John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus said that. And God tells us in many ways, put away the evil from among you. Look at the programming you're getting from these people, such as Disney. Look at what they've publicly avowed they're going to put in the programming that they're going to give to you. I wish I could how, about putting, how about putting away that evil? From yes. I wish I could remember the name of the show. It's an, eight, an HBO show. It's in its first or, sec, first or second season. I read a little blip the other day, and I, I don't think I say I think it's called Euphoria is the name of the show. It's about young people, directed to young people. And they were recounting in the first few episodes 20 cases of male frontal nudity among young people and and 20, 18 cases of female frontal nudity in this show, plus all the other sexual situations, all the other situations in this show. And it's directed to young people, homosexuality, anal sex, all of this stuff in this show directed to young people on HBO. And, and so it isn't just a bunch of dirty old men that they're directing this stuff to. They are trying to subvert the minds of the young people, and they're doing a very good job of it already. And, and, and the thing that you and I know, Gary, from our experience in life is the emotional devastation this causes later in these people's lives. It destroys them. Um, there's even there's even this show. I think it's ironic. We my wife and I, as you heard mentioned, we watch stupid British detective mysteries just because it's generally not filth, you know, per se. And it's I don't understand their cussing, so that makes it better. <laughs> so in any event, uh, my daughter-in-law's English understands their cussing, and she wonders about it. But anyway, they. Uh, uh, there's a character, one of the main characters on there is a, a, an upstanding Catholic detective named Murdoch, and he's very, very religious, and he's a high moral standard. Of course, his moral standards cause some of the dilemmas in the show, because the woman he's in love with, who is now his wife, had an abortion, and she's really liberated, and all this. This is now this is back in the early 1900s, so she was really paving the way. But when as the show goes on and on, what you see in this show is something. It's one of those cases where the writers don't intend it, but a message comes through. She's the most unhappy person of the regular characters of the show. This so-called liberated, intellectually free feminist who believes in abortion, doesn't like children, all this kind of stuff. She's the unhappy character. And yet I think they want to hold her up as a heroine. It's kind of like Archie Bunker. Remember that show, All in the oh, Family? Yeah, all the, family. the writers of the show intended for Mike, the meathead, to be the hero. He was a real liberal, progressive, hippie type. They intended at the beginning of the show for him to be the one that everybody thought was the hero, and Archie was the villain. Well, when they wrote the show that sort of corresponded humorously to reality, uh, the American public loved Archie because at least he had some character, morals of some sort. And they hated the lazy, slovenly, dependent Mike, the son-in-law. And so he became – over time, they kind of changed it. He became the butt of the jokes. But it wasn't supposed to be that way in the first place. Well, I, I keep saying, and I think we ought to watch. 
we got about we're, we're our time is gone. I'm okay. sorry. Let our me, time let me is gone. Just say all these gender fluid people are going to be very unhappy at some point in their life. Uh, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate we ran over today. Thanks for listening and tune in again next week. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie every Sunday at 9 o'clock from 9 till 10. WPSL Port St. Lucie.